I want to talk to you today about um, actually the first song, the Show Me the Way song. Um, Got a question for you. Have you ever had a song get put in your head that you can't get it out? I mean, like it's there in the shower, it's there when you're getting dressed, you're humming it when you're at the office, like it just won't go away. Oh my goodness, sometimes that happens to me, and this is what's happened the last probably six or eight weeks. And if you ask my lovely Lori Lee Shouts, what is Dan singing that drives you nuts? It would be Show Me the Way by Sticks. I don't know why. I'm a simple guy, but I cannot stop singing Show Me the Way all the time. And like some of our songs in the 80s and 90s, I know the song, but I probably made up some words like we all do to songs we don't know, right? So um, I'm looking and trying to figure out, okay, so Lord, what are you doing? Is this what I'm supposed to preach on, teach on? And of course, I start realizing throughout the week, like, I'm like, Lord, I got this decision made. Would you show, show me the way? I'm simple, remember? I need simple things. And I've got a, I've got a meeting today. And I'm like, Lord, would you, I'm not sure where to take this conversation. Would you sh- show me what I'm supposed to say today, right? And these things start showing up in my life. And I'm like, okay, Lord, I, I can tell. I need to like even more so focus on allowing you to show me not only the way, but like even in my daily life, how that works out. And so what I did was I went and did some research because, you know, I was making up words to the song that probably aren't true. In fact, as I heard them, they're definitely not true. So I looked up the song and here's some reality to this song by Sticks, Show Me the Way. Now, first of all, the, um, the author is the lead singer and it's 1990, which Brandon told me he wasn't born yet. That's so weird. That is so weird. Rick and I looked at each other and said, how did we get old? We used to be the young, cool guys. And now we're like, I was born that. Born then, then, whatever. So 1990, wonderful year, um, we had this war in Afghanistan going on, right? And the lead singer writes this song as a devout Catholic to his son about showing the way, about keeping the faith. So I'm looking at this thing like, this is not just in my head. Like, this was literally written so that... um, his son would know the way, the way of faith. So here's just a portion, some of the lyrics, the, the, right, the right words. I'll try to say it and not sing it because we want you to stay. It says this, every night I say a prayer and hope that there's a heaven. And every day I'm more confused as the saints turn in to sinners. All the heroes and legends I knew as a child have fallen to idols of clay. And I feel this empty space inside so afraid that I've lost my faith. Show me the way. Show me the way. Lead me tonight to the river and wash my illusions away. Show me the way. And as I think about that song written 30 years ago, more, it's never been more truer now. The ambiguity, the hate, the way people are looking for the way in even more creative and more hurtful ways. They're looking for the way. Now, there was a guy, if you've been around church, you've heard this name before. If you're new to church, just listen, you'll catch on really quick. But his name was Saul. And Saul was a persecutor of the way. Not the song, but I want to read a verse in Acts, and you'll catch on where we're going here. In Acts 9, 1 and 2, it says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue, uh, which is a church, in Damascus, 
So if he found any there who belonged to, there it is. That's not the song, it's the way. The way was actually believers, those who were following Jesus Christ. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And we all know not only did they wind up in prison, sometimes they wound up dead. So Saul is not a very good church boy. We might say he's um, of the religious mafia. He sort of dogged the bounty hunter in a bad way. So if this is Jesus we're pursuing, he is going the opposite way and he is religious. Don't forget, he is still religious. But there's a big difference between relationship and religion. And he's heading this way and he's trying to find anybody who's a follower of Jesus because he offended the religious hierarchy. And you know, Saul was so bad and has such a bad reputation that in the dream, after his conversion, he goes to Ananias in a dream and says, hey, I want you to go meet Saul. And Ananias says what you and I would say. Excuse me? Um, God, you want to check your notes? That's Saul the bounty hunter that wants to kill me. Why would I go connect with Saul? And you know the story. Saul is literally heading to persecute Christians, he meets Jesus, goes blind, and starts a journey totally opposite. Why? Because he read about Jesus. Why? Because he heard. No, no, no. He experienced and saw it in such a way. No one does a 180 unless something radical has changed. And thus Saul of Tarsus became Paul. And knowing a little context, because Pastor Rick has been speaking in Ephesians, and we're going to land on Ephesians here on chapter 4, understanding the context, this is not just a, a nominal guy who decided to follow Jesus. He was going the exact opposite way. And when he saw and experienced Jesus, he was nothing but the cross. So listen, um, Ephesians 4, 1, this is what Paul who's had this transformation, says to those of us who call ourselves fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. He says, therefore I, meaning Paul, a prisoner for serving the Lord. Yes, he's in jail, pinning this thing. Why? Because he cheated on his taxes. No, because he can't stop talking, not about what he heard, not about what he read, what he experienced. Because you don't go to jail just because you have nothing else to do. So he writes this, a prisoner for serving the Lord beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Now it's interesting he uses the word beg. Not, let me give you a piece of advice, um, word of the wise, you know those little things that he could have said, which you'd have listened to because it's Paul. It's not a nice little Sunday school dude. It's a guy who went from one extreme to the other. But he uses the word beg. Why? Because he knows what it's like going this way. It's like you and I and some friends being out in the Rocky Mountains and it's been a beautiful day, but it's becoming nightfall. And I'm an outdoors guy, but you know, grizzly bears, wolves, and mountain lions, little bit, you know, a little something there, but it's getting dark and we come to a fork in the road and one of our friends says, hey, listen, it's getting late, it's getting cold, it's winter time. Listen, I've been down this way. I see the mark on this tree. It leads to a ranger station, safe, warm food. Let's go this way. And we look at this other path, but it looks, it looks easier, it looks safer, it looks pretty. It looks like it could be the right way. But our friend says, no, you don't understand. It's the Rocky Mountains. It's freezing at nighttime. I know this is the way. I, I beg you, come 
this way to safety. And that's what Paul, when he says, listen, I don't give you some advice here. He's saying, no, no, I beg you, lead a life worthy. And what does lead a life worthy look like? Have any of you seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? It's an old movie. I say old movie, again, 19, whatever it was, 80s or 90s. But um, as I raised boys, like Rick raised boys, there was a season in our life, because in America we don't have a real distinct way of doing this, that um, I wanted to take my boys into manhood. And, and when is that? Is that when they're 12 to 13? Is that when they're 9 and 10? Is that when they're 19 to 20? You know, who knows when that is? But in our world, we, uh, we did a thing called Raising a Modern Day Knight, where you were a page, a squire, and a knight. And there were sort of categories, something tangible that the boys could understand what it meant to make progress in their character, in their faith, um, in their ability to work as a man. Um, as I would tell parents, I didn't raise boys, I raised men for a reason. So uh, Brady is the oldest, of course, and we're having what we call man secrets. What are those? They're secrets men talk about. From being a boy to a man. And one of them was watching some movies, because at that point in time, you know, movies are still cool, to get to interact. And I wanted my sons to know the value of things like the Revolutionary War. That seems like history, but we watch The Patriot, right? And it's gory and it's bloody and it has some words, but the intent is I want my son to realize and respect what he has now because of what people had sacrificed. And we watched um, Saving Private Ryan, which is one of the World War II movies, and it's gory. D-Day was not a pretty scene. If you've done anything on the History Channel, it is grotesque. And probably one of the better movies of illustrating that. And we're, we're watching this together, but... The story is this, um, Tom Hanks is Captain uh, John uh, Miller, and he's been given orders to find a private, a private James Ryan. And Private Ryan is the only one left of three brothers. So Tom Hanks, the captain, is given a mission for he and his men to go out and find Private Ryan, make sure he's safe, and bring him back. That's their mission. And, of course, the movie's all about the mission. It is a treacherous, it is a hard, it is a gruesome mission. They finally find the private. Most of the men had been killed. Towards the end of the movie, Tom Hanks, the captain, has been mortally wounded. He is laying down, taking his last breath. He grabs the young private, pulls him close, and says, earn this. What did he mean by that? Earn this, meaning my men have died for you. I am dying for you. Earn this. The movie goes on. At the very end, Private Ryan is an old white-haired guy. He has his wife, his grown children, and his grandchildren with him. He goes to the grave marker of his captain. He has lived his whole life. He looks down at the captain's marker there, the military cross that we've seen before. And he looks and says, Captain, I, I hope I made you proud. And he stands as every military guy does and salutes his captain. What, what a picture. What a picture of a man who lived his life with motive, with passion, with direction because of a sacrifice. You know, we as um, followers of Jesus, does that, does that sort of stay close to home when you understand a man has sacrificed for us? When Paul says to lead a life worthy, I beg you to lead a life worthy. 
He's not taking it lightly. And if we're going to, the first point is just know the way, right? If we're going to lead a life worthy, we know the way. And I don't mean, yes, I'm aware. Yes, I know about Christmas and the baby and Easter and the Easter basket and Jesus. Like you sort of mix it together. No, no. What I'm talking about is knowing or owning the way. It's like Private Ryan looking at his captain and as his dying breath saying, thanks for dying for me. I'll take it for here. No, 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 no. Jesus was on mission, right? He lived a perfect life, including temptation, including betrayal and the beating. He, he dies a thief's death that he didn't deserve. But yet God raised him to life. But through his death, we get to live. And the apostle Paul is basically saying this, earn this. Paul says in, in Romans, listen, you've been bought with a price. It was not a good day. Yeah, walked to, you know, went to church. I walked an aisle. I said a prayer. You don't understand. Jesus died on mission. He accomplished his mission so that we can live a life worthy. So the first point is we must know the way and own that way. And so I want to get real specific. What causes you, what drives you to pursue Jesus Christ, to live this life that Scripture talks about with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? So I want to get real personal because, you know, I'm a pastor's kid. Rick's a pastor's kid. We grew up with all this churchy stuff. And most of us hear this stuff and it's just, yeah, I've heard this before, Dan. Nice song. It's, yeah, I've read Ephesians many times. But I want to ask you some personal questions. What motivates you? Like, what does that mean? Because well, you know what motivates you and only you know that. And what does motivation come from? It comes from the heart. Lori and I were walking the other day and she was talking about, you know, she's lost so much weight. It's awesome. She's been working so hard. But you know what? And so have I, but I just hadn't lost enough. But I look in the mirror and I'm like, I don't like what I see. So I get motivated or you get motivated, right? And it's very personal. So let me ask you a couple of questions. What motivates you to get up every morning? Is it coffee? Well, you have a mission, but what do you do when you get up every morning? What is your motivation during the week? I mean, do you live for the weekend like everybody else does? What's your motivation to stay committed in your marriage? Ouch. Are you going to stay or leave based on feelings that everybody else teaches? It's not how Scripture teaches it. That's not how Jesus defines it. That's my question. Here's one. You're in trouble. What motivates you to come to church? Thank goodness you're here today, huh? You might be online. We'd welcome you to church. But even if you're watching online, this is a little thing. I can't go deep yet, but I want to remind us something. That Jesus came to die for our salvation, right? To give us a promise of eternity, but also a purpose. And Matthew 16 says a third thing. We don't talk about a whole lot. He came to start the church. Peter, upon you, your confession, I'm going to build a church. Not the building with air conditioning and the cool media we have. This, doing life together. Being real, knowing that's our North Star. That's our end game. We have nailed it. It's not something I sort of want to go that way. It's I have to go that way. And not, not only what motivates you, um, what or who are you living your life for? Uh, are you living it something in addition to Jesus? I mean, you know, like that in my, my golf club, like that. And, and the money that I can make and that. And, and if you add anything to Jesus, you miss the point totally. So I got to ask myself and my motives, what, what or who am I living for? 
at the end of your life, what do you want to be known for? Let me get real specific. What do you want your spouse to say about you? What do you want your kids to know about you? What do you want your coworkers, those you've rubbed elbows with, hopefully a long life, right? 30, 40, 50 years of doing something. In strategic planning, we define the end game, right? We get real specific. What do we want to look like, act like, feel like? What are we going to need to make this thing happen? And then we define reality, which may be short or maybe really far. It's just where we are. And when I define that, and let me point to the cross, we all got a gap. The question was really long or short. I just want to start taking those steps to get there. And here's the good news. You don't have to start at 8 or 20. You can start at 75 and start taking steps towards your goal, towards your end game. But when I say know the way, I don't mean just a song. I mean like nail it down. That's where I'm going. Someone died for me who says earn it. And I say I will with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. My Uncle Bobby was a patriarch of her family. And he had a verse he would, he would share with us all the time. And the verse was this, John 3.30. And it says, he must increase, I must decrease. Meaning I want to be more like Jesus in every way. Like that game plan, everything Jesus was in Galatians 5.22. I want to be more loving and patient and kind and gentle because Dan isn't always that way, right? So my uncle, which is sort of funny, memorized this short verse. He, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Here's the problem. He's six foot eight. I mean, he, how do you decrease six foot eight? He's just, you just look at him. He's a college All-American in Mississippi State playing basketball. Um, if you, on ESPN, there's the game of change that his team in the late 60s were a part of that was really transformational. They, long story I can't share, but it's cool. You want to see that. In his sophomore year of college, he got serious about his faith. Very serious about his faith. So much so that from college on, he basically did what we call a sports ministry or sports pastor in about three different churches in three different states. And he felt the call of God because this wasn't just a way, it was the way. He nailed it down, my life, this is what I'm living for. And he starts a brand new ministry. He just felt like he needed to start a ministry. Not, not at 20 or 30, 40, getting a little old, 50, probably a little too late. How about 60 years of age? He gets his son and daughter, my cousins, their spouses together. And he says, kids, um, God has called me my whole life, but he wants me to start a sports ministry. He wants me to go recruit college athletes who are believers, teach them how to not only to teach their skill of basketball or volleyball or cheerleading, but teach them how to teach others about the love of Jesus. Sports crusaders. And here's the catch. Here's the real deal. Son and daughter, all I have is my inheritance that I was going to give you to start this ministry. And if it's okay with you, I feel like I have to do that. Why would anybody do that? I mean, your kids deserve inheritance. There's some scripture about that. I get that. But when God says, do it and trust me, you just do it. And Uncle Bobby started Sports Crusaders, which has impacted thousands of people. Of course, my cousins, his kids said, of course, dad, they're believers. Of course, they, they affirmed that. They blessed him for starting that. Let me ask you a question. We talk about what kind of legacy do you want to leave? Where do you think 
his kids thought about the way? What do you think about their spouses thought about the way? What do you think the grandkids will think about, big daddy as they called them, about the way? When I say know the way, it's not awareness. It's owning it. And the next thing I want to share with us is not just uh, knowing the way, but we've got to live it out. We've got to live it out. And I want you to pay attention to um, this message. Now, the message is the same verse. It's actually adding a couple of scriptures here, but it's more of a conversational interpretation of scripture. And it says this, Paul writes again, in light of all this, here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up here, a prisoner of the master, meaning Jesus, I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run. Exclamation point. I like that. On the road, God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around in your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. Why did he write that? Because Paul didn't grow up in church. Not towards Jesus, right? He grew up being religious. He knows what that's like. He knows how empty that is. He knows life. He's an older dude. He's experienced the same temptations we have. And he's reminding us, don't get caught up in that. So the second point is, We must live the way. We must live the way. And once you know the way, that last little statement, once you know the way, you've nailed that thing down, then everything, all caps, must align to the way. Dan, what do you mean by everything? The Greek word means everything. I mean, like like everything. So what do you mean? Well, I don't know. Like what you, would I have to ask myself the same question? What I look at, what I listen to, where my thought life goes, how I spend my money, social media, hobbies. And here's a couple specifics. And, and I want to take, people have, have asked real recently, Dan, I have trouble reading the Bible. And that's true. I mean, if you read Leviticus, it's hard. That makes me go a little wacko. But Ephesians is pretty simple, pretty cut and dry. And I would encourage you to read this. But I want to give you some specifics and then just throw a little, not Danism in there, but scripture itself. So here's a couple questions. How do you treat your spouse or your significant other? Do you expect them to meet your needs or are you more like, are you Christ-like expecting to outserve and outlove them? Lori and I had an argument this morning. I have to confess. I think she was right. I hate to admit that because I'm an accurate person. But we had a debate whether I had put the clean towel out for her or she had put the clean towel out for me. Now, we don't always argue that way. It just happened to be a good one. But my point is, as I was thinking about this illustration, like that's what we want. Like that's living out the faith. That's why everything, I mean, including this dumb towel where the Lord, you took my towel, or I got your towel, or did I leave it out for you? No, no, no. Christ-like is, I want to outserve, outlove you. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. If you don't think that's just Dan's opinion, read it. It'll tell you. Husbands and wife, how we're supposed to treat each other. Everything lines up once you know the way. Um, how about at work of your supervisor? Do you honor him or her? Or you, do you talk behind their backs or with your coworkers when they're not around? Or do you honor them and their position as Ephesians 4 or Ephesians 6, 4 through 6 talks about. Again, not my opinion. Read it. If you know the way, then you've got to align everything under the way. When you're in sales, a pet peeve of mine, do you manipulate and tell the lies in order to get the sale? Or do you meet the needs genuinely, thoroughly, and to the best of your ability? And if you think that is my opinion, read Ephesians 5. It'll give you the principles for that. Do you go along with the team when they go places you know good and well a man or woman of God should not go? Do you make a different recommendation or just bow out? Ephesians 5 will cover that one too. I'm telling you, this is how practical it is. 
Do you speak words of encouragement to those God puts before you every day? I personally have to ask God to give me alertness because I get on a task and I forget. I even do this at my height. I look over people. After church, people like me waving and I'm looking at somebody else. I don't mean to, but like I have some propensities, right? And I ask God every morning, help me see people, not my task. That's how I'm driven. I'm good at that. But I'm also bad at the thing I'm supposed to be really good at, which is people sometimes. So I have to ask that. So my question is, do you speak words of encouragement to those who God puts before you every day, regardless of how they look, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of what they can do for you, just out of genuine love and care? And that comes from Ephesians 5, 16 or Colossians 4, 5, and 6. We'll nail that. And do you speak truth uh, to those below you, around you, above you, because you care and desire to make them better? That sounds like a nice principle. It sounds like a leadership tool. Ephesians 4.15. And not to leave students out, kids out. Do you honor and respect your parents? Yeah, it's in there too. I'm telling you. It's not mom and dad telling you that. Ephesians 6. Some of us were made to memorize that as pastor kids. Like, yeah, I think you were manipulating me, mom and dad. But yes, we did that. Everything you do aligns with the way. And I've had a couple people ask me this question. Well, Dan, what do you do? Because like you and Pastor Rick, you don't live a normal life. You're like, you're like straight on the road to being like Jesus. And I, you know, we're married. Our wives can tell you we ain't perfect. And, and some of the, the misnomer, the, the, mis- the, the, the wrong perceived idea is that following Christ is a straight line. And once you make the commitment, it's just straight. And that's just not true. I'm enticed like you are. When I get tired, I'm an I'm a analytical planner, preparer. My wife, the exact opposite. And I mean opposite. And so I get caught up in list, and I start to villainize her rather than value her creativity. That ain't exactly like Jesus. And then I take another little zag over here, and I walk over here, and then, I, you know, I've got a thought in my head. Where is this coming from? Or I reacted so harshly. Why am I not being gentle? That ain't Christ-like. And then I take another zag over here. So my point is this. It is not a straight-line race. It is more like a cross-country race. It's more like a triathlon. And here's my point. Once you nail down that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then when I go off and do my thing, when I make a selfish choice or do something that I regret, I hate it. Why do I hate it? Because I've already defined my finish, my end game. That is how I want to die as a man of God, a husband who loves unconditionally and sacrificially, a father who is wise and patient. And I hate it when I miss the mark. And I'm a perfectionist anyway. So it is not a straight line. It is not easy. God knew we were human. We would drift. So when we talk about everything aligns, here's what I want you to remember. When you've nailed that down and you step out and you do something stupid like I do something stupid, 1 John 1.9, perfect heavenly father. So we confess that sin. He has a ton of grace and mercy. We just realign ourselves and get back in alignment and pursue that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it is not about perfection. It's about defying your end game and wanting that with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as you pursue that, those desires, those maybe real gaps, real zigzags get a little bit smaller. But guys, they don't get perfect. There's only one man that was perfect. So don't let the enemy deceive you by saying you're not good enough sit out in the stands. God created you to be in the game, not only on the game, he created you to be a player on the stinking team. Do not believe the lie of the enemy.
but our passion is not only to know the way, it's to live the way. And we also have got to, in doing so, show the way. I mean, this is a simple outline, I know. It's know the way, live the way, and show the way. But you and I both know this world has never been more broken and more deceived, more angry, more bitter, more made-up ways to try to fill this thing, whatever we're pursuing, it's, it's crazy, the things we try to fill, whatever this thing is over here. And if we've nailed that down knowing the way, and I'm living it not perfectly, but passionately pursuing that, guys, we show people the way because they're looking for it, right? Everything you look at that seems weird or whatever, they're trying to fulfill that void. And I'm telling you, the Lord has put this song in my heart to remind me that I have things even in my own life I've been trying to maybe take control or do and I want him to show me the way. Why? Because there's other lives at stake. I want my boy, my daughter-in-laws. I want, I want my kids and my grandkids. I want those of, of us around. I want us to see that there's something different about you and the way you live. Why is that? So what do we do with all of this know, live, and show? I want to speak to those who might be here today and online. Maybe you're like checking this relationship thing out. Maybe you've had a little religion. Maybe you had a bad church experience and you're just not sure. This is sort of funny. And I told Lori, this is just how I am. I'm a simple guy. I'm last night finishing up. I never get done with my sermon. I'm adding things and we're talking about show me the way. And I'm like, what's the scripture verse about the way, right? And John 14, 6 answers the question. Which way? Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And if you're searching and seeking, this is what this looked like. It's simple, but it's profound. When Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. It's like being in the pit so so tall, so, so big you can't get out of, and you're hurting, you're cut up, and you're weak. And Jesus reaches down if you will allow him, if you call out to him. Not a, hey, you, it's a cry for help of desperation. And he will take you out of the pit, he will heal you up, and he'll give you a promise of eternity and a purpose for this life. If you're here, I just ask you to consider that. And if you're a person who walks with God, a person who's a follower of Jesus Christ, you say, Dan, I just, you're you're saying things in me that don't feel good or that sting a little bit or that I've got some gaps that I need I need some help with. Can I just ask you to do something simple again and profound? Can I just ask you to um, ask God to make your faith real? Uh, There's no mystical, magical words. God sees the heart. And I remember being a pastor kid thinking, I don't really have that kind of zeal. And I remember praying that as well. And I'm going to encourage you, Lord, would you make my faith real? As real as this young private looking to the dying eyes of his captain who says, earn this? That seems real. This is real. And here's what I want you to do. When you ask that prayer, Lord, you make my faith real. Maybe I'm just sort of going along with emotions. Maybe I've lost some of my spiritual fervor. Once you pray that prayer, I want you to do this. I want you to watch. I want you to listen. I want you to apply and get that fire and desire, as my old football coach used to say, into your heart, not just your head. Well, we know the way. 
We're not going any other way. We're living out the way so we can show a dying world, a world that is trying to fill up the way with everything but the way, and we know the way. Would you pray with me?